Hello, Cornerstone family and those who are watching online. We are so glad to have you and glad that you are rejoining us in our Acts series, To the End of the Earth. And this has been a series that has personally been very challenging, and we are hearing that it's been very challenging to our church as well. We are very grateful for that. As we get going, and I know you're probably watching this from home, we would ask you to get your Bible out. And if you are not part of Cornerstone Church and you are watching this, we would encourage you to be part of a church in person and as soon as you can, whether that's Cornerstone Church, we would love to have you. But if you're not in the area and uh, you are out of the area, we would encourage you to be part of a Christ-exalting church. Acts chapter 17, I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. I would ask that you follow along. Can you look at your Bible and keep your Bible open throughout this message? Because I'm going to be drawing your attention straight to particular parts of the passage. Acts chapter 7. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia... They came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ." And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd." And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. That is the reading of God's word, and I am going to begin to exposit it, to explain it. And I'm going to tie it into, really, where we are heading as a church. And this is a very exciting message for me to be able to give because it is so closely resembling where we are going as a church at Cornerstone. You know, there is such a joy at the birth of a baby, and there is incredible excitement when a new idea is born or a new idea is birthed, and we celebrate the birth of our nation. But have you ever had all of that joy, excitement, and celebration at the birth of a church. Well, we are looking today at just that, the birth of the church at Thessalonica. And though it will seem insignificant, this is going to become a church 
of which Paul would later say, your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. In other words, this event today that we're going to look at in Acts chapter 17 brought about the birth of a church that would become so influential in their area and around the Roman Empire that their reputation preceded them. This is exciting that we get to watch and witness such a birth as this. Well, it all started after our missionary group left the city of Philippi earlier in Acts chapter 17. And that was where Paul and Silas were horribly mistreated. They were beaten with rods. They were put into prison. And then Luke, the author, wrote, now look at your text. This is one of the ones I really want you to see. Luke wrote, now when they, did you catch that pronoun, they? He's not writing we anymore. Now it's signaling that while Luke was with them at Philippi, he wasn't with them before that, and now he's not with them again. Likely, it was Paul's habit that when a new church would begin, he would leave a seasoned, mature saint behind so that he could help that church grow. He could help that church mature and weather the storm that all new churches go through. So likely, Luke stays behind at Philippi. We don't really know for sure, but that sure seems a plausible, likely scenario. And then we get Paul and Silas, and maybe even Timothy. Timothy may have stayed behind as well. We know that he rejoins them in verse 14 of Acts 17, if you notice that, when they move on to Berea. But what we know for sure is that Paul and Silas, they are traveling on the road called the Via Ignatia. The Via Ignatia is a 700-mile-long road. It is 20-foot wide. It, has, it is topped with paving stones. Rome was incredible with the building of their roads. In fact, at the peak of the Roman Empire, there were 29 military highways. There were 372 great roads, and they covered and spanned 250,000 Miles. This is nearly 2,000 years ago. Many of the large roads began with what this one begins with, the Latin word via or via. It means way. And they were roads built to quickly ferry troops, Roman military troops, or to transport Roman taxes, or for ways to increase the trade of merchants. So these roads were built very deliberately, but in Acts 17, and I want you to hear this, God had superintended all of that, and all of these magnificent roads, and all of these structures were built because now they are transporting the gospel of Jesus Christ all over the ancient world. This is truly exciting, and the gospel is going straight into Macedonia. Macedonia is the ancient 
province of the modern day Greece. So here we go. We've got Paul and Silas. We're not sure if Timothy is with them. We know Luke was not. They're traveling 35 miles from Philippi to Amphipolis. They're traveling another 30 miles to Apollonia. And then another 33 miles more to Thessalonica, 100 or so miles in total, just days after Paul and Silas were beaten mercilessly. These were truly resilient men. And what we're going to see in Acts 17, 1 through 9, are some of the importances that you've got to be able to have if you are going to successfully plant a church. I'm going to give you three of them. These are three importances from this passage that we need to observe here at Cornerstone if we're going to be successful in planting churches. All right, all that was introduction. Here we go. I hope you got your Bibles open. We are now in chapter 17, verse 1. And look what it says. They came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Now, it may be obvious to say this, but I really want you to hear this. In order to plant a church, Christians have to go. They have to move. Now, I warned you that I, this might be obvious, but it's an often overlooked strategy. You've got to move. Churches just don't materialize out of nowhere with no strategy and with no effort. If they are going to become a reality, you must get moving. We're seeing here the importance of a strategy. The importance of a strategy. Well, you're not going to get a church plant. You're not going to start a new church. You're not going to see one birthed if you don't exude or exhibit or give faithful effort to carry out that strategy. Now, did you notice that Paul and Silas, they traveled through Amphipolis and then they traveled through Apollonia and they stopped at neither of them. They didn't plant churches at either of those locations. They went straight to Thessalonica. This is not an accident. This was deliberate. This is intentional. This is their strategy. There is something in Thessalonica that was an opportunity for the gospel. Here's part of what we know. Thessalonica was a port city. It was a city built on the water. And it was a cosmopolitan city. Meaning that all people groups, all ethnic ranges of people were there. People from all over the world. Thessalonica was a city that was called a free city. You see, what that means in the Roman Empire is that they were rewarded. Hundreds of years prior to this, Thessalonica sided with Rome in a great war. And when Rome was the victory, they rewarded Thessalonica for its loyalty, declaring it a free city. Meaning, now listen to this, meaning that they are exempt from Roman taxation, they're given the right to democratically set up their own government, and they did. They did it through five men called politarchs. They are situated by the sea. They are on the trade routes by land. They are the perfect city for the gospel to spread all through Greece. And Paul went in, verse 2, as was his custom. 
There's no record, by the way, if you go back to the beginning of chapter 17, where Paul went into a synagogue at Philippi. And what that tells us, very likely, is that there weren't enough Jewish men in the the city of Philippi to even begin a synagogue. You see, Jewish law said this, in order to begin a synagogue, you must have 10 adult Jewish men. Well, they didn't have one, it seems, at Philippi, but there was a very large, and by the way, there still is a very large section or sector of Jewish people in Thessalonica. So here they have a synagogue, and Paul went into that synagogue as was his custom. Here's what he does. And again, we're talking about strategy. He would come into a city, he would go to the synagogue, his Jewish brethren, And he would preach. And almost invariably, he would be rejected. The gospel would be rejected. Then Paul would move into the agora, the forum, or the public marketplace, where he would begin to preach Christ to the Gentiles. Well, this is his strategy. He began with the Jews. He's going to expand to the Gentiles soon as we work through the passage. But right now, he is with the Jewish people. You see, soon when, the, when he preaches Christ to the Gentiles, we're going to learn in verse 9 that many of them turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's actually 1 Thessalonians 1.9. You see, we've got two books in the Bible, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, that are addressed to this church that is actually being born and birthed before our very eyes. You see, planning a church does not just happen. It requires strategy, obedience, faith. We are a church here at Cornerstone, and I don't know how much you know about our church. I'm assuming maybe you know a lot, but just in case you don't, our strategy, our hope is to multiply worshipers, multiply disciples, and multiply churches. And we believe that if we're going to be successful in this, then we need to simplify our ministries. We need to shift all of our ministries to making disciples in order that we can spread by planting churches. You see, that is where we want to go. We want to plant churches. We want to be part of a family network of collaborative churches that all have the same vision, all have the same mission, the same strategy, but are unique wherever they are birthed. We're asking God to show us areas in our our community or even beyond that have very few Christ-preaching churches or maybe even no Christ-preaching churches. That's where we want to go. We want to bring the gospel of Jesus to dark places. See, this is Cornerstone Church. We've got Paul and we've got Silas. They walk into Thessalonica and amazingly would leave there several weeks later with a church having been born. You've got to have a strategy. But let me give you the second point. If we're going to be successful in multiplying churches, what we call multi-planting, then not only do we need to understand the importance of a strategy, we need to understand the importance of the gospel. Would you look with me at verse 2? 
And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. One of my heroes of the faith is the 19th century Charles Spurgeon. He was a pastor in England, and he would often share a story that powerfully underscored our second point, our second point being the importance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in this story, Spurgeon would tell of a young man who preached a sermon, and an older preacher was there to hear it. And afterwards, the young man came to the older preacher and asked him what he thought of the sermon. Now, the the older preacher said this, it was a very poor sermon indeed. To which the young man, shocked, replied, well, it took me a long time to study it. Did I not explain the text well? And the old preacher said, you did very well. But the hurt young man pressed him and asked him, were my metaphors not good or my arguments not conclusive? The old preacher said, well, they were good as far as that goes, but it was still a very poor sermon because there was no Christ in it. But, answered the young preacher, Christ was not in the text. I preached what was there in the text to where the point finally came as a older preacher said to him, young man, don't you know that from every town, every village, every little hamlet in England, there is a road to London? In the same way, from every text in scripture, there is a road to Jesus Christ. The sermon cannot do any good unless there is a savor of Christ in it. You see, Cornerstone, the power of preaching And the power of your witness and my witness is not with lofty, convincing arguments. It is the good news of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the Son of God. The gospel is good news that includes the reality of our terrible situation. Each person is a sinner. Every person refuses to love Christ. And instead, in unbelief, we all have rebelled. We all have defied the living God as if there is no higher being than ourselves. That's really what sin is. You see, sin is more than just behavior. It's more than just doing what you should not have done or not doing what you should have done. It's more than just committing something or omitting something in your life that should have been there or not there. Sin is a heart of rebellion to its creator. Every single sin that you will ever commit and every single sin that I will ever commit has a God word direction. Ultimately, it is against God. And that defying of God produces terrible atrocities like the horrific mass shootings that just happened, like aborting babies, like exploiting the vulnerable, like changing your biological sex. All of these is the heart saying, I'm going to live the way that I want to live. I answer to no one. 
See, that's the systemic deepness of sin. It's way more than just behavior. You cannot stop a behavior and say to God, therefore, God, you must be pleased with me. I am right in your eyes. No, the rebellion and the cosmic defiance of sin lies at the utter depths of our hearts. Many can see sinfulness in evil people, but friends, I want you to hear this, how difficult it is to see the self-worship of sin that lives in the hearts of even good people. You know, a century before Spurgeon lived, there was another man in England that went across back and forth the pond, across the Atlantic Ocean. He preached in England. He preached in the northeastern states of, the, of, of America. And he was one of the ones that touched off the Second Great Awakening. This man's name was George Whitfield. And thousands of sinners came to know Jesus Christ through his outdoor preaching. God put a measure of grace in Whitfield that was useful to the salvation of thousands and thousands of people, all the way from England to America. Well, one of his supporters in England was Lady Huntington. And she supported his ministry financially, but more than just financially, she wrote to her friends and invited them to come hear Whitfield speak. And she wrote a letter to the Duchess of Buckingham, who was one of her friends, an incredibly wealthy, very notable, very famous, very influential woman, and invited the Duchess of Buckingham to attend Whitfield's meetings. The, the, lady, the Duchess of Buckingham wrote back to Lady Huntington, and we've got the letter preserved. Here's what it said in part. I thank your ladyship for the information concerning these preachers. Their doctrines are most repulsive. It is monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common lechers that crawl on the earth. This is highly offensive and insulting, and I cannot but wonder that your ladyship should relish any sentiment so much at variance with high rank and good breeding. Can you believe that letter? Friends, that resides in the hearts of every sinner. It may not be so eloquently stated as the, lady, as the Duchess of Buckingham, but it is there in the heart of every sinner, not just those who commit evil and atrocities, even those who do good. They do not want the Creator to lord over them. Paul goes into the synagogue and then he moves into the marketplace with this gospel, the good news that though all of us are rebels defying our creator, that same creator sent his son Jesus to suffer in our place. And by his death, he paid for the sins, making possible the forgiveness of any who believes. Now, I want to slow down for just a moment. I'm going to look straight at you. I want you to look straight back at me for just a moment. Do you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? If not, friends, 
then that defiance, whether you can see it or not, lives deeply in your heart. You are in need of salvation. And the gospel, the good news that I am preaching to you now is the same exact good news that Paul and Silas preached 2,000 years ago. Will you believe? Do you have an understanding of the gospel message? Are you persuaded by it? And are you willing to commit your life to Jesus as your Lord and Savior? That's what it means to believe. Well, Paul didn't just quote verses in the synagogue. He didn't just throw scripture at those in the marketplace. That's moralistic preaching. That is utterly reductionistic. It does no good for anybody. He, he reasoned with them. Look what the text says. He reasoned with them. That doesn't mean go back and forth. That means he preached. He presented to them lock-tight reasoning. Showing them the gospel, showing them that Jesus, though he died on that cross, was raised to life and seen by over 500 witnesses. He is proof his resurrection, that he is God, and that he could give life to any believing sinner. This is the gospel. This is the good news that Paul gave to them. It is the good news that I am giving to you. See, the power of our witness, Christian, if you already do believe, and you are my brother or my sister in Christ, the power of our witness is the word of God, and the scriptures always have a road to Jesus. It centers on Jesus Christ. And it's that good news of Jesus Christ that Paul, look at your text, was explaining and proving we all need saving, and the Savior has come, he has accomplished our salvation through his life, death, and resurrection. You only need to believe in him. Do you remember I told you a few moments ago that we have two books called First and Second Thessalonians that Paul wrote back to this church years later? Well, in one of them, First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2, listen to what Paul writes back to them. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you, Thessalonican Christians, the gospel of God in the midst of such conflict. So Christian, be competent. Know the word of God. Study, show yourself approved. Be familiar with it. Be confident. It's the only way to heaven, Jesus Christ, and the word of God lights that path. So declare the word of God, declare the gospel. It is good news to cosmic rebel, rebels like you and like me. It has the power to open your eyes and to show you the path and to give you the motivation to come to Jesus in believing faith. Be competent, be confident, and be committed to God's word. Keep God's word central to all that you say, you will find the road to Jesus and you will give it clearly for those who need to be on it. 
Acts 17, verse 4, look at this. And some of them were persuaded. Some of them, the Jewish people, were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. And now, as a result of the marketplace, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Here's what we've learned so far in points one and two. There's an importance for a strategy. And there is the critical importance of the gospel. But third and finally, the importance of the committed. The importance of the committed. Look at verse 5. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. One of the things that I think I can tell you with an absolute guarantee is this, that when God and the power of the gospel of his son begins to do a great work, the devil will always rise up and try to hinder it. When God begins to do a great work, the devil will always try to hinder it. If you've never been baptized in water baptism and declaring publicly your faith in Jesus Christ, here's what we've seen over and over. When you come up out of that water and you go back to your regular life, here comes trials. Here comes the attacks. Jesus, or the devil hates the public declaration that I have been saved by Jesus Christ. He will come like a roaring lion. When God begins to free you from an addiction, from a sin that has beset you, and he begins to put your feet on the rock of Jesus Christ, do not be surprised. Here comes the fiery doubts, he, uh, the fiery darts. Here comes the trials. Here comes the difficulties. All of them designed to put a little bit of a crack in your faith to God. Is he really good to me? When God does a work of freeing sinners from their unbelief, the devil will work feverishly to oppose. And when a church is begun in the power of the gospel and sinners are being saved, the devil will come in rage and he will try to sow seeds of discord. He will try to lead them in division. Well, we're, here we are in Thessalonica. He is acting through the Jews, the devil is, who of all people should have recognized the Christ, the anointed one, the one sent by God to save his people. But the Jewish people in mass and at large did not recognize Jesus. Well, there's something you want to know in verse 5 that's kind of behind the scenes, and I want to bring it out to you. It's going to make a lot of sense in a moment. And perhaps the greatest threat that a Roman city would face was the threat of rebellion and unrest. You see, if you're declared like Thessalonica was as a free city, the privilege of remaining free depended on its rulers, here the five polytarchs, to maintain 
peace. They called it in Latin the Pax Romana. Pax in Latin is peace. In English, Romana is Rome. It's the peace of Rome. If you wanted to maintain your rewarded status of a free city, then you must maintain and keep the peace. Nothing would lose for you that privileged status than allowing an uproar and sedition and rebellion and military coups. Nothing was faster at losing your Roman peace. It was the charge, by the way, that Jesus was a threat to Caesar that the Jewish people gave to Pilate that finally motivated that governor to tip over the edge and call for his crucifixion. In Philippi, just at the beginning of this chapter, if you want to look back for a moment, it was the charge that Paul and Silas were, quote, disturbing our city, unquote, causing a riot that prompted the magistrates to beat them and put them into jail. You see, this threat, the Jewish people knew it well. You're going to lose your status as a free city if you do not keep the peace. So here comes the cries at the accusations of an upright uproar and rebellion. Roman city officials were cowed by threats of insurrection. Rome had zero tolerances for them. So the Jews deliberately set the city in an uproar. And look at your text with me. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. They are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king Jesus, this is the accusation that they're bringing to the Polytarchs. And those five Polytarchs were cowed. They were disturbed. They were agitated by fear. And caught in the crosshairs were not just Paul and Silas, look at your text, but the house of, J- of, of Jason. And that's where Paul and Silas were likely staying while they were in Thessalonica. It's likely that Jason and his household came to believe in Jesus through the ministry of Paul and Silas. Just like earlier in the chapter, the Roman jailer in Philippi came to believe in Jesus and all of his household as well. Now they're coming the mob is at the door of Jason's house, threatening to crash in the door, demanding that he brings out the two rebels causing the upstart rebellion, Paul and Silas. Jason and some of the believers were then forcibly hauled to court. They were charged, and then they posted bail, which would be forfeited if there was another disturbance. So we want to ask, we want to ask this question, did the devil succeed? Was he able to stop this church from starting? Did the birth of the church end in stillborn status? Well, if you really want to know the answer to that, I've got to take you to 1 Thessalonians, where a very remarkable four verses are given at the pen of Paul the Apostle. He writes many years later, looking back on this church in Thessalonica, he writes this in chapter 1, verse 4, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. 
Because our gospel came to you, Thessalonica, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know, church at Thessalonica, what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. So did the devil succeed? Did the devil win? The devil will never win. The devil will never succeed. God's purposes will be victorious. And not only did Jason and his household, where this church began to meet almost certainly, not only did it continue, it became a church so powerful that all of Greece, ancient Macedonia, all of Achaia heard about them, that a church could be born and thrive in the middle of opposition and affliction and suffering. You see, the blood of the saints is the seed of the church. The blood of the saints is the seed of the church. Now, Christian, I want you to hear something because this is where we're moving as we multi-plant. The devil is going to try and hinder everything we do. He's going to try to hinder the work of the gospel. I'll tell you the fastest way to get out of persecution for a church or for a Christian. Just stop talking about Jesus. He'll leave you alone. But Christian brother and sister, you must not do that. For if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my father. We must hold to our faith in Jesus and we must be witnesses. And this church will proclaim the gospel. We will exalt Christ. We will tell sinners, even if they don't want to hear it, that they are under the judgment and the wrath of God, but there is a way out. And there is only one way out. And that is through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You must agree to that. You must be persuaded to that. You must understand to some degree that gospel message and you must commit yourself to Jesus in faith. For Jesus has promised, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The powers of hell will not overcome us, Christian. For we are Christians, we are the children of our God, and greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. So friends, what's our vision as I close? Our vision is to be a family of multi-planting churches that make disciples of Jesus who will live on mission for the glory of God. If you come to Cornerstone, you are being invited into that mission, into that vision rather. The mission is our strategy. We have a logo with M cubed. And what that means is our strategy is to multiply worshipers, win people to the Lord, bring the gospel to the unsaved, multiply worshipers, build them up in Christ, teach them the word of God, strengthen them with the gospel, multiply disciples, 
and then multiply churches. So multiply worshipers, disciples, and churches. Our priorities are to simplify our ministries because the good is the enemy of the great. If we get bogged down in all kinds of good things but never make it to the great, then we're a church that's not gonna realize our vision. We gotta simplify our ministries. We've gotta shift everything that we do to making disciples so that we can spread the gospel by planting churches wherever Christ is not reigning. Our confidence is that all of us are witnesses of the gospel. The good news that Jesus Christ saves believing sinners through his life, death, and resurrection. All roads in the word of God lead to Jesus. See, Paul had a strategy. Paul had the gospel. And Paul found a committed core. And they turned the world upside down. Be encouraged, Cornerstone. Let's get on mission for the sake of the glory of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we take this very, very seriously, this passage. We take the word of God very, very seriously. We will not be, we cannot be, and we never have been a church that relishes storytelling but never gets to the power of the gospel. We are an expositionally preaching church because we believe that all roads in the word of God lead to Jesus Christ. Lord, you have given us a strategy we have confidence in the gospel to do the work that you want us to do. And you are raising up a committed core. Father, would you help us to be a family of multi-planting churches that make disciples of Jesus who will live on mission for the glory of God. Would you inspire and motivate every single person that is in this church and every person listening to this message, Lord, to get on mission to be a witness for Jesus Christ, to have boldness, courage, the audacity, even in the face of opposition and persecution, to proclaim the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Father, if anybody is listening to this message, and they do not yet believe. Lord, will you open their eyes as you did the people in Thessalonica? Even wealthy, powerful, leading Greek women and their husbands. Lord, open their eyes and let them understand the good news of Jesus. Let them be persuaded by it and give them the faith to commit themselves to Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior. Would you work powerfully, even through this message? We love you, we thank you, we trust you, Jesus. We commit ourselves to you, and it's in that powerful name and the authority of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, that we pray, amen.